Section 11 of Catherine de Medici by Honoured Balzac, translated by Catherine Prescott Wormley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9. The Tumult at Amboise. By moving the court to the chateau of Amboise, the two Lorrain princes intended to set a trap for the leader of the party of the Reformation, the Prince de Conde, whom they had made the king summon to his presence. As vassal of the crown and prince of the blood, Conde was bound to obey the summons of his sovereign. Not to come to Amboise would constitute the crime of treason, but if he came, he put himself in the power of the crown. Now at this moment, as we have seen, the crown, the council, the court, and all their powers were solely in the hands of the Duc de Guise and the Cardinal de Lorraine. The Prince de Conde showed at this delicate crisis a presence of mind and a decision and willingness which made him the worthy exponent of Jean d'Albret and the valorous general of the reformers. He travelled at the rear of the conspirators as far as Vendome, intending to support them in case of their success. When the first uprising ended by a brief skirmish, in which the flower of the nobility, beguiled by Calvin, perished, the prince arrived with fifteen noblemen at the chateau of Amboise on the very day after that fight, which the politic Guises termed the tumult of Amboise. As soon as the duke and cardinal heard of his coming, they sent the Marquis de Saint-André with the escort of a hundred men to meet him. When the prince and his own escort reached the gates of the chateau, the marquis refused entrance to the latter. "'You must enter alone, monseigneur,' said the chancellor Olivier, the cardinal de Tourmont and Birago, who were stationed outside of the portcullis. "'And why?' "'You are suspected of treason,' replied the chancellor. The prince, who saw that his suite were already surrounded by a troop with the Duc de Nemours, replied tranquilly, "'If that is so,' I will go alone to my cousin and prove to him my innocence. He dismounted, talked with perfect freedom of mind to Birago, the Cardinal de Tournon, the Chancellor and the Duc de Nemours, from whom he asked for particulars of the tumult. Monseigneur, replied the Duke, the rebels had confederates in Amboise. A captain named Lanou had introduced armed men who opened the gate to them for which they entered and made themselves masters of the town. That is, you say, you opened the mouth of a sack and they ran into it, replied the prince, looking at Barago. If they had been supported by the attack which Captain Chaudieu, the preacher's brother, was expected to make before the gate of the Bonhomme, they would have been completely successful, replied the Duc de Nemours. But in consequence of the position which the Duc de Guise ordered me to take up, Captain Chaudieu was obliged to turn my flank to avoid a fight. Go instead of arriving by night, like the rest, this rebel and his men got there by daybreak, by which time the king's troops had crushed the invaders of the town. And you had a reserve force to recover the gate which had been opened to them, said the prince. Monsieur le marquis de Saint-Andre was there with five hundred men at arms. The prince gave the highest praise to these military arrangements. The lieutenant-general must have been fully aware of the plans of the reformers to have acted as he did, he said in conclusion. They were, no doubt, betrayed. The prince was treated with increasing harshness. After separating him from his escort at the gates, the cardinal and the chancellor barred his way when he reached the staircase which led to the apartments of the king. We are directed by his majesty, monseigneur, to take you to your own apartments, they said. Am I then a prisoner? If that were the king's intention, you would not be accompanied by a prince of the church, nor by me, replied the chancellor. These two personages escorted the prince to an apartment where guards of honour, so called, were given him. 
There he remained without seeing any one for some hours. From his window he looked down upon the Loire and the meadows of the beautiful valley stretching from Amboise to Tours. He was reflecting on the situation and asking himself whether the geezers would really dare anything against his person when the door of his chamber opened and Chicot, the king's fool, formerly a dependent of his own, entered the room. They told me you were in disgrace, said the prince. You'd never believe how virtuous the court has become since the death of Henri the Second. But the king loves a laugh. Which king, François the Second or François de Lorraine? You are not afraid of the duke if you talk in that way. He wouldn't punish me for it, monseigneur, replied Chico, laughing. To what do I owe the honour of this visit? Eh, hey, isn't it due to you on your return? I bring you my cap and bells. Can I go out? Toi? Suppose I do go out, what then? I should say that you won a game by playing against the rules. Chicot, you allow me. Are you sent here by someone who takes an interest in me? Yes, said Chico, nodding. He came nearer to the prince and made him understand that they were being watched and overheard. What have you to say to me? asked the prince de Conde in a low voice. Boldness alone can pull you out of this scrape. The message comes from the Queen Mother, replied the fool, slipping his words into the ear of the prince. Tell those who sent you, replied Conde, that I should not have entered this chateau if I had anything to reproach myself with, or to fear. I rush to report that lofty answer, cried the fool. Two hours later, that is about one o'clock in the afternoon, before the king's dinner, the Chancellor and Cardinal de Tournon came to fetch the prince and present him to Francois II in the great gallery of the chateau of Amboise, where the councils were held. There, before the whole court, Conde pretended surprise at the coldness with which the little king received him, and asked the reason of it. "'You are accused, cousin,' said the Queen Mother, sternly, "'of taking part in the conspiracy of the reformers. You must prove yourself a faithful subject and a good Catholic, if you do not desire to draw upon your house the anger of the king.' Hearing these words said, in the midst of the most profound silence, by Catherine de' Medici, on whose right arm the king was leaning, the Duc d'Orléans being on her left side, the Prince de Conde recalled three steps, laid his hand on his sword with a proud motion, and looked at all the persons who surrounded him. "'Those who said that, madame,' he cried in an angry voice, "'lied in their throats!' Then he flung his glove at the king's feet, saying, "'Let him who believes that calumny!' Come forward. The whole court trembled as the Duc de Guise was seen to leave his place, but instead of picking up the glove, he advanced to the intrepid hunchback. If you desire a second in that duel, Monseigneur, do me the honour to accept my services, he said. I will answer for you. I know that you will show the reformers how mistaken they are if they think to have you for their leader. The prince was forced to take the hand of the lieutenant general of the kingdom. Chicot picked up the glove and returned it to Monsieur de Conde. Gazen, said the little king, you must draw your sword only for the defence of the kingdom. Come and dine. The Cardinal de Lorrain, surprised at his brother's actions, drew him away to his own apartments. The Prince de Conde, having escaped his apparent danger, offered his hand to Mary Stuart to lead her to the dining hall. But all the while that he made her flattering speeches, he pondered in his mind what trap the astute Balafre was setting for him. In vain he worked his brains, for it was not until Queen Mary herself betrayed it that he guessed the intention of the Guises. 
It would have been a great pity, she said, laughing, if so clever a head had fallen. You must admit that my uncle has been generous. Yes, madame, for my head is only useful on my shoulders, though one of them is notoriously higher than the other. But is this really your uncle's generosity? Is he not getting the credit of it rather cheaply? Do you think it would be so easy to take off the head of a prince of the blood? All is not over yet, she said. We shall see what your conduct will be at the execution of the noblemen, your friends, at which the council has decided to make a great public display of severity. I shall do, said the prince, whatever the king does. The king, the queen mother, and myself will be present at the execution, together with the whole court and the ambassadors. A fate, cried the prince sarcastically. Better than that, said the young queen, an act of faith, an act of the highest policy. To the question of forcing the noblemen of France to submit themselves to the crown and compelling them to give up their tastes for plots and factions. You will not break the belligerent timbers by the sure danger, madame. You risked the crown itself in the attempt, replied the prince. At the end of the dinner, which was gloomy enough, Queen Mary had the cruel boldness to turn the conversation openly upon the trial of the noblemen, on the charge of being seized with arms in their hands, and to speak of the necessity of making a great public show of execution. Madame, said Francois II, is it not enough for the King of France to know that so much brave blood is to flow? Must he make a triumph of it? No, sire, but an example, replied Catherine. It was the custom of your father and your grandfather to be present at the burning of heretics, said Mary Stuart. The kings who went before me did as they thought best, and I choose to do as I please, said the little king. Philip the second, remarked Catherine, who is certainly a great king, lately postponed an auto de fe until he could return from the low countries to Valladolid. What do you think, cousin? said the king to Prince de Conde. Sire, you can't avoid it, and the papal nuncio and all the ambassadors should be present. I shall go willingly as these ladies take part in the fete. Thus, the Ponstecon, at a glance from Catherine de' Medici, bravely chose his course. At the moment when the Ponstecon was entering the Chateau d'Amboise, Lecamus, the furrier of the two queens, was also arriving from Paris, brought to Amboise by the anxiety into which the news of the tumult had thrown both his family and that of Le Lallier. When the old man presented himself at the gate of the chateau, the captain of the guard, on hearing that he was the queen's furrier, said, "'My good man, if you want to be hanged, you have only to set foot in this courtyard. Hearing these words, the father, in despair, sat down on a stone at a little distance and waited until some retainer of the two queens or some servant woman might pass who would give him news of his son. But he sat there all day without seeing anyone whom he knew. He was forced at last to go down into the town, where he found, not without some difficulty, a lodging in a hostelry on the public square, where the executions took place. He was obliged to pay a pound a day to obtain a room with a window looking on the square. The next day he had the courage to watch, from his window, the execution of all the abettors of the rebellion who were condemned to be broken on the wheel or hanged as persons of little importance. He was happy indeed not to see his own son among the victims. When the execution was over, he went into the square and put himself in the way of the clerk of the court. After giving his name and slipping a purse full of crowns into the man's hand, 
He begged him to look on the records and see if the name of Christophe Legamus appeared in either of the three preceding executions. The clerk, touched by the manner and the tones of the despairing father, took him to his own house. After a careful search, he was able to give the old man an absolute assurance that Christophe was not among the persons thus far executed, nor among those who were to be put to death within a few days. My dear man, said the clerk, Parliament has taken charge of the trial of the great lords implicated in the affair, and also that of the principal leaders. Perhaps your son is detained in the presence of the chateau, and he may be brought forth for the magnificent execution which their excellencies, the Duc de Guise and the Cardinal de Lorraine, are now preparing. The heads of twenty-seven barons, eleven counts, and seven marquises, in all fifty noblemen or leaders of the reformers, are to be cut off. As the judiciary of the county of Turin is quite distinct from that of the Parliament of Paris, if you are determined to know about your son, I advise you to go and see the Chancelier Olivier, who has the management of this great trial under orders from the Lieutenant General of the Kingdom. The poor old man, acting on this advice, went three times to see the Chancellor, standing in a long queue of persons waiting to ask mercy for their friends. But as the titled men were made to pass before the burghers, he was obliged to give up the hope of speaking to the Chancellor, though he saw him several times leave the house to go either to the chateau or to the committee appointed by the Parliament, passing each time between a double hedge of petitioners who were kept back by the guards to allow him free passage. It was a horrible scene of anguish and desolation, for among these petitioners were many women, wives, mothers, daughters, whole families in distress. Old Lecamus gave much gold to the footmen of the chateau, entreating them to put certain letters which he wrote into the hand either of Dael, Queen Mary's woman, or into that of the Queen Mother. But the footman took the poor man's money and carried the letters, according to the general order of the cardinal, to the provost marshal. By displaying such unheard-of cruelty, the Guises knew that they incurred great dangers from revenge, and never did they take such precautions for their safety as they did while the court was at Amboise. Consequently, neither the greatest of all corruptors, gold, nor the incessant and active search which the old furrier instituted gave him the slightest gleam of light on the fate of his son. He went about the little town with a mournful air, watching the great preparations made by order of the cardinal for the dreadful show at which the Prince de Conde had agreed to be present. Public curiosity was stimulated from Paris to Nantes by the means adopted on this occasion. The execution was announced from all pulpits by the rectors of the churches, while at the same time they gave thanks for the victory of the king over the heretics. Three handsome balconies, the middle one more sumptuous than the other two, were built against the terrace of the Chateau of Amboise, at the foot of which the executions were appointed to take place. Around the open square, stagings were erected, and these were filled with an immense crowd of people attracted by the widespread notoriety given to this act of faith. Ten thousand persons camped in the adjoining field the night before the day on which the horrible spectacle was appointed to take place. The roofs on the houses were crowded with spectators, and windows were let at ten pounds apiece. An enormous sum in those days. The poor old father had engaged, as we may well believe, one of the best places from which the eye could take in the whole of the terrible scene, where so many men of noble blood were to perish on a vast scaffold covered with black cloth, erected in the middle of the open square. Thither, on the morning of the fatal day, they brought the Chouquet, the name given to the block on which the condemned man laid his head 
as he knelt before it. After this, they brought an armchair draped with black for the clerk of the parliament, whose business it was to call up the condemned noblemen to their death and read their sentences. The whole square was guarded from early morning by the Scottish guard and the gendarme of the king's household in order to keep back the crowd which threatened to fill it before the hour of the execution. After a solemn mass said at the chateau and in the churches of the town, the condemned lords, the last of the conspirators who were left alive, were led out. These gentlemen, some of whom had been put to the torture, were grouped at the foot of the scaffold and surrounded by monks who endeavoured to make them abjure the doctrines of Calvin. But not a single man listened to the words of the priests who had been appointed for this duty by the Cardinal of Lorraine, among whom the gentlemen no doubt feared to find spies of the Guises. In order to avoid the importunity of these antagonists, they chanted a psalm put into French verse by Clément Marot. Calvin, as we all know, had ordained that prayers to God should be in the language of each country as much from a principle of common sense as in opposition to the Roman worship. To those in the crowd who pitied these unfortunate gentlemen, it was a moving incident to hear them chant the following verse at the very moment when the king and court arrived and took their places. God be merciful unto us and bless us and show us the light of his countenance and be merciful upon us. The eyes of all the reformers turned to their leader, the Ponce de Conde, who was placed intentionally between Queen Mary and the young Duke d'Orléans. Catherine de' Medici was beside the king, and the rest of the court were on her left. The papal nuncio stood behind Queen Mary. The lieutenant-general of the kingdom, the Duc de Guise, was on horseback below the balcony, with two of the marshals of France and his staff captains. When the Ponce de Conde appeared, all the condemned noblemen who knew him bowed to him, and the brave hunchback returned their salutation. It would be hard, he remarked to the Duc d'Orléans, not to be civil to those about to die. The two other balconies were filled by invited guests, courtiers, and persons on duty about the court. In short, the whole company of the Chateau de Bois had come to Amboise to assist at this festival of death, precisely as it passed, a little later, from the pleasures of a court to the perils of war, with an easy facility which will always seem to foreigners one of the main supports of their policy toward France. The poor syndic of the furriers of Paris was filled with the keenest joy at not seeing his son among the fifty-seven gentlemen who were condemned to die. At a sign from the Duc de Guise, the clerk, seated on the scaffold, cried in a loud voice, Jean-Louis Albaric, Baron de René, guilty of heresy, of the crime of lese majesté and assault with armed hand against the person of the king. A tall, handsome man mounted the scaffold with a firm step, bowed to the people of the court, and said, That sentence lies. I took arms to deliver the king from his enemies, the Guises. He placed his head on the block, and it fell. The reformers chanted, Thou, O God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us. All silver has tried in the fire, so hast thou purified us. Robert, Jean, Rand, Brecmoire, Comte de Villemongis, guilty of the crime of lese majeste and of attempts against the person of the king, called the clerk. The count dipped his hands in the blood of the Baron de Ronay and said, May this blood Recoil upon those who are really guilty of those crimes. The reformers chanted, 
Thou broughtest us into the snare. Thou laidest afflictions upon our loins. Thou hast suffered our enemies to ride over us. You must admit, Monseigneur, said the Prince de Conde to the papal nuncio, that if these French gentlemen know how to conspire, they also know how to die. What hatreds, brother, whispered the Duchess de Guise to the Cardinal de Lorraine. You are drawing down upon the heads of our children. The sight makes me sick, said the young king, turning pale, with a flow of blood. Pooh, only rebels, replied Catherine de' Medici. The chance went on, the axe still fell. The sublime spectacle of men singing as they died, and above all the impression produced upon the crowd by the progressive diminution of the chanting voices, superseded the fear inspired by the Guises. Mercy! cried the people with one voice, when they heard the solitary chant of the last and most important of the great lords, who was saved to be the final victim. He alone remained at the foot of the steps by which the others had mounted the scaffold, and he chanted, Thou, O God, be merciful unto us, and bless us, and cause thy face to shine upon us. Amen. Come, Duc de Nemours, said the Prince de Conde, weary of the part he was playing. You who have the credit of the skirmish, and who help to make these men prisoners, do not feel under an obligation ask mercy for this one. It is Gaston now, who they say received your word of honour that he should be courteously treated if he surrendered. Do you think I waited till he was here before trying to save him? said the Duc de Nemours, stung by the stern reproach. The clerk called slowly. No doubt, he was intentionally slow. Michel, Jean-Louis, Baron de Castelnau, Chalos, accused and convicted of the crime of lese Majeste and of attempts against the person of the king. No, said Castelnau proudly, cannot be a crime to oppose tyranny and the projected usurpation of the Guises. The executioner, sick of his task, saw a movement in the king's gallery and fumbled with his axe. Monsieur le baron, he said, I do not want to execute you. A moment's delay may save you. All the people again cried, Mercy! Come, said the king, Mercy for that poor Castelnau, who saved the life of the Duc d'Orléans. Cardinal intentionally misunderstood the king's speech. Go on, he motioned to the executioner, and the head of Castelnau fell at the very moment when the king had pronounced his pardon. Head, pardon. Goes to your account, said Catherine de' Medici. The day after this dreadful execution, the Prince de Conde returned to Navarre. The affair produced a great sensation in France and at all the foreign courts. The torrents of noble blood then shed caused such anguish to the Chancellor Olivier that his honourable mind, perceiving at last the real end and aim of the Guises disguised under a pretext of defending religion and the monarchy, felt itself no longer able to make head against them. Though he was their creature, he was not willing to sacrifice his duty and the throne to their ambition, and he withdrew from his post, suggesting L'Hôpital as his rightful successor. Catherine, hearing of Olivier's suggestion, immediately proposed Birago and put much warmth into her request. The cardinal, knowing nothing of the letter written by L'Hôpital to the Queen Mother, and supposing him faithful to the house of Lorraine, pressed his appointment in opposition to that of Birago, and Catherine allowed herself to seem vanquished. From the moment that L'Hôpital entered upon his duties, he took measures against the Inquisition, which the Cardinal de Lorraine was desirous of introducing into France, and he thwarted so successfully 
or the anti-Gallican policy of the Guises, and proved himself so true a Frenchman that in order to subdue him he was exiled within three months of his appointment to the country seat of Vignet, near Etam. The worthy old Lecamus waited impatiently till the court left Amboise, being unable to find an opportunity to speak to either of the queens, and hoping to put himself in their way as the court advanced along the river bank on its return to Blois. He disguised himself as a pauper, at the risk of being taken for a spy, and by means of this travesty he mingled with the crowd of beggars which lined the roadway. After the departure of the Ponce de Conde and the execution of the leaders, the duke and cardinal thought they had sufficiently silenced the reformers to allow the queen mother a little more freedom. Lecamus knew that, instead of travelling in a litter, Catherine intended to go on horseback, à la planchette, such was the name given to a sort of stirrup invented for or by the queen mother, who, having hurt her leg on some occasion, ordered a velvet-covered saddle with a plank on which she could place both feet by sitting sideways on the horse and passing one leg through a depression in the saddle. As the queen mother had very handsome legs, she was accused of inventing this method of riding in order to show them. The old Fourier fortunately found a moment when he could present himself to her sight, but the instant that the queen recognized him she gave signs of displeasure. Go away, my good man, and let no one see you speak to me, she said with anxiety. Get yourself elected deputy to the States General by the guild of your trade, and act for me when the assembly convenes at Orleans. You shall know whom to trust in the matter of your son. Is he living? asked the old man. Alas, said the queen, I hope so. Lacamus was obliged to return to Paris with nothing better than those doubtful words, and the secret of the approaching convocation of the States General thus confided to him by the Queen Mother. End of section 11